0: Good morning, Christ Church Roseville. How are you guys? Good, good. Um, You'll have to forgive my voice and some sniffles. I am losing to this pollen apocalypse, and um, it's not been a good battle so far, so you'll have to forgive me for that. But thank you so much for just the opportunity to be able to be here, to fellowship with you guys. Um, Being at Christ Covenant Church just Right down the road, we hear often of you guys. You're prayed for often. You're cared for. Um, We just are thankful for the work that you're doing here in Roseville. And it is evident, even as driving here, the amount of signs saying, this housing development over here and this housing development over here. It is clear that this area is growing. And um, it's exciting to know that there is a gospel-believing, faithfully preaching congregation that is gathering together to learn more about Christ and to love this community. And so we're very thankful for you guys. So, I have been very much encouraged and looking forward to teaching on this topic. I think what you guys are going through with going through the Apostles' Creed, phrase by phrase leading up to Easter, is actually pretty unique, and it's been enjoyable. I listened last week to Jim's sermon on He Suffered Under Pontius Pilate. And um, when I think about the Apostles' Creed, one of the things I appreciated about it is uh, I think about... Before I married my wife, Lauren, you're like, where are you going with this? Apostles' Creed and then your marriage? This is going to be interesting. Well, when I first met my wife, Lauren, when we were dating, um, when we would text each other, it was Agonizing, and it was agonizing because we weren't, um, we hadn't started, we hadn't defined the relationship yet, and so there was this gray area. And in this gray area, it was: should I say this to her? Should I? How do I text this to her? Will she know it's funny, or will she take this the wrong way? And I remember her texting me, and it probably took her twenty seconds, and for my reply, twenty minutes, just thinking through. All right, well, she may misread this, or you know, I don't know how she's going to take this. And it was just, it was a very. Terrible place for me to be in. I did not like being in the gray. I did not like knowing where we all stood. And I feel that way even in sometimes some social events when we get together with friends. It's like, you know, why are we getting together? What's the reason for this? I need some type of baseline to help guide me through. And one of the things that is great about the Apostles' Creed is that it provides for us a baseline as the church. Um, Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a prolific writer, speaking into culture and Christian engagement, how we should view the world. Um, he's recently actually come out with a book on the Apostles' Creed that I would say is a book for someone to walk through who's an unbeliever, someone who is a fresh believer, or just to be reminded as a mature believer of some of these truths. But his book on the Apostles' Creed, it's called Discovering Authentic Christianity in an Age of Counterfeits. And one of the quotes he has is that with the Apostles' Creed, Christians can believe much more than what's written in it, but Christians cannot believe less than what's written in it. And so what it is, is it kind of serves as a way to help us distinguish who is of our flock, who can we call brother and sister, and who can we not by what they deny of this. So each phrase of the Apostles' Creed is an important litmus test to see who is of our fold. And so, Today we have he was crucified, and we're going to use Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 to kind of help serve as launching points as to what does it mean when he was crucified? Why was he crucified? And so we're going to talk about he was crucified for our sin, he was crucified for our salvation, and he was crucified according to God's sovereign plan. So those are the three points we're going to work through. So first, he was crucified for our sin. Now, as it says here, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Before we decide and or before we walk through what that verse means, I think it would be fair of us to answer just a couple objections right off the bat that those who may have against Christianity and this idea of a crucifixion. So, when we say he was crucified for our sin, there would already be immediate pushback from uh, maybe folks who would claim to be believers, maybe folks who have been against Christianity. And some of the pushback would be uh, in two areas. One would be, how can you trust in a God who is an abuser? It's a cosmic abuse what happens. So this whole thing you worship is that a father decides to punish his son through sending him to a cross, to have him beaten and whipped, to have him pierced, to have him go through one of the most painful uh, forms of execution you can face. That is the type of religion you worship. So there's an objection there. Like, why would you hold to this father who's a cosmic abuser? And then the other piece that I was just listening to the other day with Bart Ehrman um, on a podcast who was talking, and, and he, Bart Ehrman is a um, New Testament scholar who teaches at Chapel Hill. His life's work was, he, he started out, he would say he was a Christian, he's no longer a Christian, he'd say he's a former Christian. We would say he never was a Christian. But um, he has spent his life writing and trying to debunk the inerrancy of the New Testament. And so one of the things he tries to do is persuade students to not hold to Christianity once they enter into his class. And anyway, on this podcast, this New Testament scholar prolific in his field is um, holding to this idea. Yeah, one of the things that's kind of weird about Christianity that a lot of just ignorant Christians bypass is it's human sacrifice. Like it's just... This idea that, I mean, that a human can be sacrificed and then that brings salvation, doesn't that kind of teach us a sadistic kind of morbid worldview that your whole salvation, your whole hope is built on this idea of human sacrifice? And so there's these attacks thrown against something that we would treasure and hold within the church is that he was crucified. The secular world would look at it and say, no, you believe in cosmic child abuse. No, you believe in human sacrifice. What? Why do you relish in that? Why do you sing songs about that? And it all starts with, well, you don't understand, he was crucified for our sin. It was our sin that held him there. And see, they fail to realize that we don't say, we don't endorse human sacrifice. It would not matter if I was sacrificed. It would not matter if anybody in this room was sacrificed. That would not appease a holy God. Because, They fail to understand the character of who God is and the depth of our sin. They fail to understand that in verse 10 when it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. They fail to understand that every single person is under the curse of God. Since the garden, every single person is born with a sin nature. When Adam and Eve did what was right in their own sight and they rebelled against God, All of us from that point on have inherited their sin nature. We have the responsibility to obey God, but we have lost the ability to obey Him since the garden. And so now all of us are under this curse. All of us are by nature children of wrath waiting and under His condemnation because if you don't keep the law, if you don't keep one part of the law, you face His condemnation. And the law being You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This law, this idea of loving Him and loving your neighbor, as Jesus sums it up, that commandment is not just for the church, but it's for all people made in His image. That we all are responsible to worship Him, and yet we do not. We break it. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We worship the creation rather than the Creator. And we do these things externally, we do these things internally, and we all are under this curse. And we fail to realize that God must be just. There must be a punishment that is poured out. That of course, as he defines himself in Exodus 34, which is what Bart Ehrman and those folks who would push back against him as a cosmic abuser or as someone who endorses human sacrifice, they they fail to read the totality of scripture. They fail or they overlook to see that even when God in Exodus 34, when he defines himself to Moses, how does he define himself? That he's a God who's slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, giving his covenant love to generation after generation, but will by no means acquit the guilty. And so what they miss is, is that he is a holy God who is gracious and merciful, but he also is a just God. And our sin, our sin, has what has led him to be crucified. I think it's fascinating and misleading um, when we start to hold to, it's not an endorsement of human sacrifice. They just fail to see the depth of our sin. They fail to see the depth of the wickedness of our sin, that nothing that we offer to God can appease him. That's why Christ was different. That's why as Christians we don't endorse human sacrifice, we don't endorse crucifixion, or we don't endorse mutilation of the flesh to be more holy to God, but instead we say there was only one man who was perfect and who was righteous, and it's Christ Jesus. Uh, But I think it's fascinating, I I meant to say this, was that in the Old Testament and throughout pagan religion, one of the first things that they would want to offer as a human sacrifice is a child predominantly. And why do you think that is? That there's even in this human inclination, if the, the cultures even go to doing human sacrifice, that often it would start with a child or a baby. And I think it's already this picture of innocence that well, we're not going to offer this older man or this older woman, this adult, because first of all, there's just the, the, there's the external effects. They seem to have some imperfections as time goes on, which we all feel that. But then there's also this um, imperfection of as they get older, we see just how like non innocent they are, how they've lived this life, how there's all this sin and this There's this stuff marked with them. And yet, there's something about a baby that seems innocent. There's something about a young child that there's this innocence there. And so I think that's even why they're trying to offer up this sacrifice. And even in the Old Testament, offering up a a young lamb. But yet we see none of those things can appease a holy God. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, when we talk about he was crucified for our sin, I think it's very easy to quickly go, yeah, I mean, those pagans out there, he was crucified for their sin. And as it's talking about in verse 10, all are under the curse of the law. We start thinking about um, all the people that we know who are our coworkers, who are our friends, who are just living up this American lifestyle, who are just replete with sin, and we just start saying, yeah, that's them. They can't keep the law. This is for them. This is a reminder for them. And actually, in the book of Galatians, when we hop right here in chapter 3, we're in a book that is, Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he is calling out false teachers called Judaizers. And what these folks were doing is that they were telling these new Christians is that, yeah, you can have Christ, but you also have to have Judaism. You also have to have the works. You can have Christ, but you also have to remember to keep doing your dietary laws. You have to remember to keep going back to the Mosaic Covenant, to keep going back to the old law. So it was Christ plus something else. And so Paul throughout this book is writing to them and warning them and saying, no, 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 you, it, it, you don't need Christ plus something else. You just, you have to have Christ. And so even in the context of chapter three, when we're starting in this, he asks them this rhetorical question that I think could reverberate throughout our minds for a while, and it should. In chapter three, verse three, he asks them this. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, are you so foolish that what God has done for you through a work of the Spirit, a supernatural work of making you His, Are you now trying to maintain your salvation? Are you now trying to maintain your relationship through works? And that's what they're running up against in this context of Galatians, is that they are forgetting that their salvation is wholly dependent upon Christ and nothing else. That they are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, throughout this letter... Is not trying to tell them, run away from the law, don't ever have anything to do with the law, but he's trying to remind them, the law cannot save, for cursed is anyone who cannot keep all of the law. Not just like three, ten, three out of 10 on the 10 commandments. We all have our favorite ones that we're like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at that one, but my wife, she really struggles at this one. No, 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 it's all of them. If you can't keep one bit of it, you face condemnation. And so, for us, as we look at this passage, as we think about why was he crucified, well, it's for our sin. It's for the rank pagan who is worshiping himself, who is not seeking God, who is not loving him, who is lying, cheating, and stealing. But it's also even in this context of this book, and as it's written for us, it's a reminder that he was, uh, he was crucified for our sin. Our sin even now, as we sit here and we look so, so pretty. I mean, we look really good, and we've learned all the, like, church lingo. Like, um, it is so easy to quickly add Christ plus this part. Um, For instance, Christ plus His radio. Christ plus, uh, making sure I catch out all the new Christian movies that come out. Christ plus, you know, you gotta wear dress pants to church. Like, we can add all of these extra things to come with salvation, and we forget, no, 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 it's Christ. He was crucified for our sin for our sin of trying to either when we rebel against him or even for our current sin of where we try to add our works to please him or to maintain our salvation so why was Christ crucified he was crucified for our sin but Notice that in verse 11 through 13, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And this is uh, in verse 11. This helps you know that you're walking down the right understanding, is that um, in verse 10, no one can be uh, found righteous before God. You know that because then he says, you can't keep the law to be found righteous because no one can do it. Verse 11 says, there is a righteousness that comes by faith not in works, not in your own ability to please God, but by faith. In verse 12, it says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But look at 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why was he crucified? For our salvation. He became a curse for us. He redeemed us. There was... No other way. There was no other way for man to be made right before God. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be an atonement. And so when we look at he was crucified, why? For our salvation. In what sense? Well, on the cross we see that he becomes our sacrifice. On the cross we see that he is the one who bears all the wrath of God. On the cross, we see that he becomes the lamb who suffers on our behalf. He is the sacrifice for us. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Hebrews also continues in 10.4 to say that that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We needed a sacrifice that was righteous and perfect. And I want to be careful when I say his we, um, that our salvation is tied up to his crucifixion and it alone. It is a part of a chain of all of Christ that leads to our salvation. It's his willingness to leave heaven and to be born of a virgin. It's his perfect life. It's his never deviating from God's plan. It's his perfect walking out the uh, righteousness of God, never having a wayward thought, never having a wayward action. His righteous life, his active and passive obedience is ours, but also his death on the cross is ours, but also his resurrection, which you'll celebrate in just a few weeks in a very exciting manner, is all part of our salvation. But in this moment, in this moment, we'll see that the cross is integral to our salvation because at the cross he became a sacrifice for us he becomes a curse for us and we see that also not only is he a sacrifice I I do work at a Southern Baptist seminary, so that means there has to be alliteration. It's just part of the job, okay? So if you've been, like, tracking with me, you know, sin, salvation, and then with salvation we have, you know, he's our sacrifice, and then the next one is he's our substitute okay? So there's alliteration rolling with you right there. Um, if you're like, man, he could have used a better word. I, I probably could have, but I just, I like the alliteration, okay? Um, that's my like three three-second thing on alliteration. I don't even know if they're still using that in um, preaching classes now, but if they are, it, it's very helpful. But he is our substitute. He is our substitute, and he's our substitute in the fact that you see this contrast that cursed is everyone who does not keep the law. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things in the law. You see that, and that's for all of us because we can't please God. We can't keep the law. And that's why there's this contrast of, well, you have to have faith. You can't trust in the law. You can't trust in your abilities. You have to have faith, and you have to ask the question in those verses, well, what's the object of my faith? Well, 13, it's Christ, It's Christ who redeemed you from the curse of the law. So you see that this curse moves from being on you to being on him. For we, we are wretched sinners. For we engage in sin all the time. And we are under a curse, as Romans 1 reminds us. The wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. And yet, the crucifixion as Paul says here, is a picture of him redeeming us from the curse of the law. Him bearing our curse. As we sang that beautiful song that Landon uh, led us through is that in how deep the Father's love is it was our sin that held him there. He was our substitute. One of my favorite songs that we can sing was In My Place Condemned He Stood. He became every. He became all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness. For He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As you read through the Old Testament, and you look at what it is to become a curse of God, to become a curse of God, where he, bores, where he pours out all of His wrath, is a dark and scary picture. And you see it in little glimpses. You see it perhaps in Noah's flood, what it looks like to face God's judgment and be under his wrath. You see it perhaps um, with the sin of, um, I always mispronounce his name, Achan, where the earth swallows him up. Um, You see it in the sin of the judgment of the Egyptians when they are under the curse of God and the firstborn is wiped away. You see the curse of when it's laid out throughout the law um, that one of the parts of being cursed is that in the battle that when you fight this nation, when you lose, the birds of the air will come and devour your flesh and there'll be no one to scatter them. And these are just physical pictures that point to an even far darker reality and that is the fact that Ultimately, being under the curse means that you will face God's wrath for forever and ever. You will face his displeasure for forever. One of the things that I think is fascinating is that even in the most difficult and challenging moments of this life, we still have the grace of time. What do I mean by that? We still have the grace that tomorrow is going to come. It might get a little better. or There's going to be an alleviation at some point. Maybe the alleviation is ending in death, but there is always this It lessens to some degree as time keeps moving on. As they say, time heals all wounds. But in God's presence, facing his wrath for forever, for our disobedience to him, time will be removed and there'll be no relief. There'll be no uh, lessening of the punishment for all of his righteousness and his holiness will be poured out on rebels like us. Except for those who trust in Christ, who became a curse for us. He redeemed us. He had to be crucified for our salvation. He had to be sacrificed for our sins. So when we confess the Apostles' Creed, when we say he was crucified, we're confessing that he was crucified for our sin. That's what brought him there. And we're also confessing that he was crucified for our salvation as the sacrifice and as the substitute. Think about the power of that phrase when you say it, how that distinguishes you from other people when you say, no, I don't trust in myself to please this holy God, but I trust in him who was crucified. And then finally, he was crucified according to God's sovereign plan. He quotes uh, from Deuteronomy, Paul does, when he says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree you ever wondered why christ was crucified like there are other forms of judgment that could have happened other ways he could have been killed like in the gospel of um, john when he confesses to be i am when he confesses in a sense to um, what they knew when he was confessing saying that i am that he was calling himself yahweh they want to pick up stones to stone him but he's able to get out of their midst Or in Luke chapter 4, where um, after his teaching, they're so angry that the crowds gather together and they want to push him off a cliff, and he's on the edge of a cliff, and then it just says, and he moved through the midst of the crowd. We don't know how he did it. We don't know if he became like, what happened in that moment? All we know is he was on the edge of a cliff, and then he just moved through the crowd. You see, he was crucified according to God's sovereign plan, because we see that Paul is picking up this verse and saying and reminding us that in Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, Paul isn't just willy-nilly trying to pick a verse to apply here. What he's doing is he's saying that this is the fulfillment of God's plan all the way from the beginning. That the son would be crucified. And if you think I'm lying, in Acts chapter 2 Verse 23 in Peter's sermon, he speaks to the crowd and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was all according to the definite plan that God had already sovereignly made out. That Christ would be crucified. And think about all the details that are attached to his death. Think about all the things that God fulfills of his law in the crucifixion. Think about the the Roman soldiers gambling away his garments and how that's a fulfillment of the psalm. Think about um, that when he was hanging on the cross that his bones weren't broken to remind us, as John says, that he's the Passover lamb, that not a bone would be broken. Think about how he was pierced they will look upon him whom they have pierced, as it says in Zechariah. There are numerous verses throughout that the New Testament writers pick up to point and show you that his crucifixion was not a surprise to God, but it was according to his plan to save us from our sin and to bring us our salvation. And I think in this passage, when he brings up Deuteronomy, when he brings up Deuteronomy as cursed as everyone who hangs on a tree, it should be the verse that we go back to over and over again when we think about what do we have in Christ? We have all of the blessings, and he has all the curse. How do I know it? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on a tree in my place. It should have been me facing all of God's wrath. It should have been me on the cross. but yet God in his kindness reminds us that all of this unfolded according to his sovereignty and as a picture to you that he became the curse for you. So if anyone in this room has doubts, how do I know Jesus paid for all of my sin? How do I know Jesus took up and swallowed all of God's curse, all of God's wrath? All the way from the beginning. All the way from the beginning, it was laid out. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And Jesus perfectly fulfills it, even in his death. He didn't come in 2000. He didn't come um, in an era where there would be a different way that he could die. But in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians 4, he was born of a virgin and he came and fulfilled the law. He came at such a time that where he would be crucified on a tree to fulfill this passage and also point to us that he's become the curse for us. So I would encourage you that when we confess the Apostles' Creed, when we speak about he was crucified, that it would lead you to worship in all the different things that are packed into that statement. And there are numerous other points that we could go with, but that when we confess he was crucified, we're confessing our sin. That he was crucified, why? For our sin, And he was crucified for our salvation and he was crucified according to God's sovereign plan to save us, all of his goodness, even before you were born. So with these things, let's take a moment and just consider our sin, consider our salvation in Christ for those of us who trust in him and then I'll close us in prayer.